Good morning. Welcome in. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Jay White, and for Liz Gill this morning with Professor Richard Gershon at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And uh, this morning we're talking about Mississippi's new Landowners Protection Act. It took effect July 1st of 2019 with our guest this morning, Professor Farish Percy and Attorney, attorney Jesse Mitchell. Uh, Professor Percy is uh, with Professor Gershon at uh, the University of Mississippi campus in Oxford. And uh, Attorney Jesse Mitchell is here at the MPB Think Radio studios uh, with me this morning. So we've got a lot of voices uh, to Relay this information to you and to answer your questions. If you have any questions about uh, the new Landowners Protection Act, you can give us a call if you want to talk to us this morning. one eight seven seven mpb ring is the number. one 672 7464 You can always email the show legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon. How are you? Doing great, Jay. Great to have you with us, and uh, really so honored to have uh, Professor per- Percy and uh, also Jesse Mitchell today. Uh, Ferris Percy is one of the leading experts in insurance law in our state and has written extensively in, in that area. And uh, Jesse is a rising star. He has uh, started in a defense firm, a major defense firm, but now has his own firm, and uh, they will bring a great perspective on this important issue. All right, so uh, let's let's get it started. Uh, for whoever, Professor Gershon, if, if you want to lead our guest into these uh, questions, but I'll throw it out there. Give us, uh, I guess, the overarching idea of uh, the new Landowners Protection Act. Well, it definitely restricts liability for landowners when a third party commits a criminal act on their premises. It makes it very, very difficult to... Uh, bring a successful claim. The first thing I thought of maybe 15 or 20 years ago, the Castle Doctrine was a big thing in Mississippi that was was very controversial. Uh, in in what ways is this similar or in how many how many ways is this very much not similar to that? I think they're distinct um, issues. The Castle Doctrine really has to do with self-defense and this um, law has to do with a landowner or occupier's liability. It seems like some of this comes from more, you know, the concern about uh, landowners and slips and falls and things like that. You know, people hear about somebody slipping on a banana at Walmart and suing Walmart. Does this change Walmart's liability in that situation? No. The new law just um, addresses when a third party is on the property and commits an intentional or criminal act. So maybe you are at a bar and one patron got unruly and picked a fight with somebody. Um, Normally, before this law, um, you would have some duty to protect patrons from foreseeable criminal activity on your property. You hire security, and they would have a duty to remove um, a rowdy customer. Yeah, that's, I mean, so, now, Jesse, I think you had a case, if, I don't know if you can talk about it too much, but, I mean, you had a case recently that dealt with some of these issues, and uh, there was a question as to whether the law applied retroactively to affect your case. Absolutely. Um, we've handled uh, several, I mean, probably over 15 of these cases over the last uh, three years, and it relates to inadequate security on the property. Kind of goes back to what Professor Percy was mentioning. 
And as it relates in, in the law, is simply, well, the law simply was this. And then I'll transition into what it is now. But it was that if you were an invitee, meaning if you were on a property at the request or by permission of the landowner or a guest, and usually a guest means if there's a tenant or resident at a apartment complex, a condo, and they have a guest on the property or them or themselves on a the property, <clears throat> they will be considered an invitee. And the com- based on the common law, which was um, the law of the land in Mississippi until this new statute passed, that invitee was basically the landowner had to provide that invitee with a reasonably safe environment as well as warn them of any hidden of any hidden or, un, or hidden dangers. Um, and that included <clears throat> criminal activity and atmosphere violence on the property. So meaning this. If you have a property that's in an environment where it is um, a known criminal environment or an environment with <clears throat> that uh, that has a propensity for crime, then you had to provide adequate security to combat that crime. Now, that doesn't mean absolute security. That doesn't mean absolute security to prevent any crime. But it's based on the circumstances of what is the atmosphere of violence on or around this property? And do you have adequate security to combat that known violence? And and so transitioning to the the LPA, as we call it, the Landowners Protection Act, those elements of what you had to prove <clears throat> based on the common law, as well as the remedies, have been severely stricken. Um, and it goes back to. Professor Gershon, your question on our case. Our case was a case where, as I said, we've handled several of these, where a tenant at an apartment complex was attacked, beaten, and raped in a parking lot at her apartment complex, um, in which the apartment complex said they provided 24-hour security, but they did not. They they only provided one hour of security. And uh, they also knew about... Uh, these rapes and attacks that were going on in the area, but failed to warn or increase security um, on the premises. And she was attacked in the parking lot, raped and beaten for 45 minutes. Um, And under the old law, we were allowed to bring a claim to show that there was an atmosphere of violence on the property, that the landowner knew of the atmosphere of violence on the property, and that the landowner did not provide adequate security to combat the known atmosphere of violence on the property. Um, based on the landowner, and we were successful in that case. Based on the Landowner Protection Act, though, we could not bring that case at all today. So, it, I mean, it sounds like to me that um, someone like that who is assaulted on property that she is a, a tenant. Uh, is less protected than if I happen to be uh, at Walmart and I slip on a banana. I mean, and, and that, uh, so I'm not sure I understand what the logic behind that law is. That's a good question that I think you would have to ask a lot of uh, your le- uh, Mississippi legislators because I don't get the impetus or what, I, I guess, I mean, there are rights, because here's my, here's my position on it. <clears throat> Based on the common law, you can bring any and absolutely every claim um, as I said, we've handled probably 10 to 15 of these cases over the last three years. I guarantee you we've rejected probably 
40 or 50 because they did not meet the needed requirement and elements that were allowed that we needed to bring a claim under the common law. Um, so and, and now, as I said, the case that we just um, were successful on, that's a case based on the LPA that she would have absolutely no way of ever bringing um, and it would be dismissed before it started. Well, can we let's focus a little bit on just the, the we can get back to the LPA in just a second. But I want to ask Professor Percy um, and her expertise as a torch professor. So do I have liability as a landowner generally as a residential landowner to a trespasser? What? So in Mississippi, um, landowners owe a very limited duty to trespassers, and that is just to refrain from wanton and willful injury. Um, so uh, lots of states have done away with the distinctions between invitees, licensees, and trespassers. Uh, but in Mississippi, we still retain those classifications. So your um, the claim that you might be able to bring and the duty a property owner owes you is dependent upon your classification as a trespasser licensee or invitee. And invitees are owed the highest duty. Now, so this new law doesn't affect the residential parties? Well, it, it does refer to commercial property, but it also says as other real property. Um, so any person who... Uh, owns or manages commercial property or other real property. Yeah, it's kind of interesting they didn't just say it applies to real property. Right. All right, this uh, morning we're talking about Mississippi's new Landowners Protection Act that took effect July 1st of 2019 with our guests, Professor Ferris Percy and Attorney Jesse Mitchell. If you have a question this morning, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. We'll be back. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jay White in for Liz Gill this morning with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest this morning, Professor Farish Percy and Attorney Jesse Mitchell. And we're discussing uh, the new Landowners Protection Act that took effect July 1st of 2019 with our guest. And uh, Professor Gershon, before we get back into the topic and go any further. Let's, um, if we can, get to know a little bit about our guests. First, uh, for uh, Professor Percy, uh, a little, just a little bit about yourself, how you uh, found yourself at uh, the University of uh, Mississippi there, and, and um, how you got into the field that you're in. Sure. I um, 
have been at Ole Miss Law School for 20 years now. And before that, I practiced in Oxford um, with a law firm that did a lot of um, tort uh, litigation and commercial litigation for both plaintiffs and defendants. Um, so I was a member of the Mississippi Bar, and I still am. And I teach torts as one of my regular courses here. All right, with us uh, again, uh, Professor Percy is uh, in Oxford with uh, Professor Gershon. In the studio here in Jackson with me is Attorney Jesse Mitchell. And uh, Jesse, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your background and uh, where you're from, how you got to where you are today. Um, I'm from the big city, well, coastal city of Moss Point, Mississippi. Yeah. Um, went in on a scholarship, played football at Ole Miss. Came back, uh, went to law school at Ole Miss. Professor Percy was one of my uh, professors there and did an excellent job in insurance, uh, insurance law. Um, and then started out with Baker Donaldson defending cases, civil liability cases um, here in Jackson. And then branched out and started my own firm where we do pretty much all uh, plaintiff's work now. Um, and... I have main offices in Ridgeland, Mississippi. I have an office in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and one in Oxford, Mississippi. So, wow. Okay. So, I bet the NCAA, um, they call you every day wanting you to, to uh, you know, give your give your story about how you're a student athlete that uh, also has a law degree. I'm sure there's not a whole lot of those. The NCAA doesn't call me much because <laughs> one, <laughs> one of my niches is um, – Defending NCAA cases, and I've done that for years. So I'm kind of the guy that they don't want to see and don't call. <laughs> so. Gotcha. Well, <laughs> how about that? There's irony there. Uh, but uh, let's before I hand it back over to you, Professor Gershon, uh, I wanted to kind of uh, go back, uh, loop back into something we talked about quickly in the first segment. And um, there, there was uh, reference to a case uh, that. Um, you know, a woman was sexually assaulted on uh, the, the premises of an apartment complex. And uh, under the new uh, laws, that case would not be able to be pursued. Uh, whereas in the past, um, I guess maybe, uh, Jesse, many more cases were presented to your firm, but very few actually met it, uh, met, met, it, met the criteria what what was the criteria? What is the criteria now? Okay, so <clears throat> the difference in and in to use this case as an illustration, um, the difference used to be under the common law. Basically, you had to show that there was an atmosphere of violence on or around the property. And when they say around the property, usually you look at a half a mile to a mile radius of the property and show is there an increased atmosphere of violence of that nature around the, the property and environment. Once you show that element, then that gives the landowner or puts the landowner on constructive notice that look, hey, you're in an atmosphere where things of this nature happen uh, are happening. You need to provide adequate security or reasonable security to combat those. And so in a nutshell, those were the three elements. Um, if I may drill sure. down a little bit deeper, Adequate security is a pretty wide berth. That's a that's a that's a pretty plain tone to put on sure. something that can make someone a, an, an owner of a property or a business or something like that extremely liable. And I'm sure there's a lot of ways that of a, that a lot of um, that a lot of people could try to use 
and, and bend that in different ways to their advantage. Sure. And, and I'm a business owner as well. And the same rules apply to me. But that's the beauty of our civil litigation system. Mm-hmm. If before you and, and I'm speaking of the common law, the old law, before you even got to whether security was adequate, the judge is the checks and balances. And you have what's called either motion to dismiss under 12B6 or a motion for summary judgment. If you were to bring a case that did not meet the criteria of having an atmosphere of violence, if the defense can show, look, there's no atmosphere of violence on this property, that case is dismissed even before you get to what's reasonable security. Now, what's reasonable security is a question that is for the jury to decide. Ah. Uh, And so for common, everyday people, our citizens in the community to say, based on what these two lawyers have shown us Mm -hmm. over the last two weeks at this trial, here was the atmosphere of violence that was presented to us. Was the security adequate, reasonable to combat that uh, atmosphere of violence and what they knew what was occurring on the, on these properties. So in layman's terms, there's almost not necessarily a, a definable way to, I guess, put adequate um, protection or safety. Uh, it's, it's something that has to be established with each individual case. That's a case by case basis. That's exactly correct. And, and it's for the, the jury to decide if it was adequate or not. Um, and what that definition means in each particular case. Interesting. Uh, Professor Gershon, before I hand it back over to you, let me uh, remind folks that they can call and be a part of this conversation. Give us a call this morning by dialing one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. That's 1877-MPB-RING, 1877-672-7464. And you can email us legal terms at mpbonline.org. Well, Jay, you know, it's a, I, I wanted to ask uh, Professor Percy because uh, she and I were talking about this a little bit before, and Jesse just hit on it as well, the idea that um, what we're doing by having this legislation is taking it out of the court system. And I think what people forget is that we have separations of powers in our country and that uh, each, each branch serves a role. And certainly the courts are, are there to hear these kind of cases. And, in fact, the Seventh Amendment uh, of the United States Constitution says that in you know, suits of common law where the value of controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved and no fact tried by jury shall be otherwise uh, re-examined by any court in the United States other than the courting rules of common law. And, and what these statutes really do, I think, is maybe take that right away. I mean, would you agree with that? Or? Certainly, to some extent, um, by making it so uh, difficult to bring a successful claim, um, you could argue that it is a violation of your constitutional um, right to a jury trial. Um, and I expect that there may be some challenges to this law um, on those grounds in the future. Um, and I, I want to reiterate what Jesse was saying earlier. Um, before this law, Mississippi's law was consistent with the law of a majority of other states. And it simply held um, business property owners to a duty to use reasonable care. And so that duty applies in all kinds of contexts. Lawyers have to use reasonable care, essentially doctors, um, other professionals, other businesses. Um, And so even though you can't define what is reasonable security, juries in every negligence case across the country decide what the standard of reasonable care demands all the time, depending on the particular circumstances of the case. 
Um, and so uh, a jury can decide whether an atmosphere of violence exists, whether then the property owner undertook adequate security measures, and still the plaintiff has to prove that those measures, whatever the plaintiff says the property owner should have done, hired more security guards, placed more surveillance cameras, that if that had been done, that probably would have prevented the incident in question. So that's a pretty high hurdle um, that existed under the common law before this act was passed. Um, and in addition, we have tort reform um, that limits um, damages that a property owner would pay for uh, non-economic damage. So that there was plenty of, there was sufficient protection for property owners before this law, in my opinion. To take a counter point of view, I mean, I'm looking at y'all politics right now, and, you know, uh, their, their position is, well, lawyers are out of control, essentially, and, uh, you know, there are these lawsuits, these frivolous lawsuits happening uh, that are forcing these residential, or I, I should say these uh, uh, landowners to have to settle these cases, and, you know, they, they cite that uh, there's a uh, national residential rental owner has about 17% of their portfolio in Jackson, but 86% of their total cost to settle are in Jackson. I mean, is there any, any truth to that at all? In, uh, I, d I mean, I don't know. I, I would have to look at the uh, data that they're relying on. Um, but I, the law, as I've just said, really is or was consistent with the law in the large majority of other states. And now, as it is written, it makes it very, very difficult um, to successfully sue a property owner. And it also um, reduces the property owner's incentive to provide adequate security measures, which is a public safety concern. Absolutely. Jesse, it, it, sure, sure. Professor Gershon, and, and let me speak to that. And I kind of alluded to it earlier. But when I hear, you know, it, this prohibits the filing or bringing of frivolous lawsuits. Let me kind of explain that from the business side of what we do. As you heard me say earlier, we in the last three years, we've brought and filed 15 of these cases. There's a mechanism, uh, as I spoke about earlier, Rule 12b-6 and then uh, rules, uh, motion for summary judgment that allows the judge on initial filing and on motions from the defendants to look at the case and say, this case does not pass muster, I'm kicking it out. But on the business side of that as well is, is this. These cases are taken by firms like, like my firm and a lot of other firms across the country on a contingency fee basis, meaning we front all the costs and expenses up front. If there's a case that I know is frivolous or will not pass muster, I do not bring it or take it because sometimes in these cases we have anywhere from $20,000 to $100,000 in expert fees and court costs and other costs well before we get to a jury or get to, get to court or through a trial. That's real risk. And I don't know anybody who has a business model that is set up to carry risks like that based on a frivolous case. Usually, if that's the case, that case will not ever be filed and ever be seen. Um, if a case is filed, then you better believe that most of the time it is a case that that firm believes in and believes that they can get a result uh, at trial in. Uh, so... You know, this prohibiting the filing of, of frivolous lawsuits. No, what it prohibited, in my opinion, is 
lawsuits and ability for citizens to recover from negligence uh, like the, the, the client I had here um, in under the new. And I think this is maybe something that kind of can help explain under the new statute. One of the main issues is, is this. The property owner or the plaintiff has to show that there were three similar, which is a vague term, as this statute uh, states, similar instances or similar crimes in the past three years in which the criminals were caught and arraigned. Now, there are a whole bunch of issues in that. One, what are, what are similar crimes? Is a robbery and a, because is a robbery and a rape a similar crime? Is a robbery with a firearm, but a robbery with a knife or a robbery without a weapon, a similar crime uh, as or is rape something told or does it have to be three rapes uh, with no robberies <clears throat> as well as sometimes prosecutors may not arraign a criminal, even though they caught him and have evidence because they may have other issues or the criminal may be charged or have other charge or pleads to something different even though they actually did the crime. And as well as there are times when criminals aren't caught, but the act may be caught on video. And there's no question whether there were three other rapes on a property, but for whatever reason, the criminal got away and never was arraigned. You could, a uh, citizen would never be able to bring a claim under those facts that are similar to ours under the new statute. I'm so glad you addressed that, Jesse, because, you know, the, the whole concept, people have a, this idea that lawyers are just out there filing you know, frivolous lawsuits. And ethically, we're, we're not allowed to do that either. And uh, and so I appreciate you addressing that. I don't agree with what y'all politics said. I just thought I would present that uh, position. All right. The number to call this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Our guest this morning, Professor Farish Percy at the University of Mississippi, and in studio here at MPB is Attorney Jesse Mitchell. I'm Jay White filling in for Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon, and this is in legal terms. And today we're talking about the new Landowners Protection Act. That took effect July 1st of 2019. Give us a call if you want to talk about this topic. 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. It seems like uh, there's a lot of um, uh, vagueness to both sides of the argument here. What is the motivation to push this one way or the other? Uh, I'll read to you some some, uh, statements from the governor as uh, well as uh, some other folks that were uh, for this, including the president of the Mississippi Association uh, for Justice, who was against it. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jay White here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, our guests are uh, Attorney Jesse Mitchell here in the studio with me, Professor Ferris Percy uh, at the uh, University of Mississippi School of Law with Professor Gershon. And this morning, we're talking about the Landowners Protection Act. A, a new law here in the state of Mississippi that went into effect July 1st. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. With regard to this law, it was uh, uh, Graham Carner, president of the Mississippi Association for Justice, 
uh, that said that if the bill is signed into law, Mississippi will become less safe and it will lead to a diminished sense of security. Uh, He wrote, landowners will no longer be held responsible if they ignore known dangers on their property. This This will result in them not taking simple safety measures such as adequate lighting, surveillance cameras, running off people they know to be violent, or other basic security that customers have come to expect. Uh, the opposing, uh, to present an opposing side of this, Governor Phil Bryant um, supports the bill and said, when you see uh, uh, trial lawyers that are screaming, that means that there is something good happening for businesses and for individual landowners across the state. Uh, responding to the claim that the bill would lead to lack of security, Governor Bryant said that's ridiculous. This is to simply protect landowners, farmers, and business owners. This is a, uh, this is a, uh, a, you're going to get sued if anybody walks on your property and hurts themselves, and we should not be at risk simply because we own property and try to run a small business. And that's just pre- presenting uh, people on either side of uh, this new bill, not to take one side or the other, but just to present two opposing views of it right there. You can give us a call this morning, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And uh, those quotes I took there were from a story from uh, News Mississippi, uh, newsms.fm. Let's go to the phones. We have uh, Mikey on the phone in Mobile. Mikey, thanks for calling this morning. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for accepting my call this morning. Um, uh, I know that the Alabama laws are probably a little different from Mississippi, and this is a new law for Mississippi. Um, And as a further twist, um, uh, I'm asking more in regard to uh, residential properties. Um, If someone breaks into your house and, and, uh, you know, cuts their hand up, you know, smashing your glass, are you responsible for that? Go ahead, Jesse. I can see Jesse shaking his head. Go ahead. Absolutely not. Um, It goes back to what Professor Percy mentioned early on in the broadcast, that you have these three classes of individuals, an invitee, a licensee, and a trespasser. And that case, that is considered a trespasser. And all your duty to, obviously, your duty to a trespasser is to refrain from willfully or wantonly injuring him or her. So if they are trying to break in your house, um, and then that goes and gets into the castle doctrine as well, which is a, a similar or a different issue. Um, so but what you sh- pardon me for interrupting, please. Um, but so what you should do to protect yourself from that posting no trespassing signs, um, uh, is it also a requirement to have surveillance cameras on residential property? Um, again, I, I realize this is Mississippi new law. Uh, please. Help me, you know, of any other questions. Sure. Absolutely not. You don't have to post trespassing signs. The law will identify uh, the individual based on whether or not the property owner, landowner gave them permission to come on the property to the benefit of the landowner or mutual benefit of both parties. In this case that you just described, it is a pure trespasser. You do not have to post signs. The law identifies them as a trespasser and you do not owe them. Again, please excuse me, uh, but... Um, if it's a family member whom you formerly trusted but have found out to be insufficiently trustworthy. It's looked at on an individual case-by-case basis. So today I may come on your property as a guest and then return tomorrow as a trespasser. 
I think that may answer your question. It depends on what the landowner's intent and permission was and how the intent and the permission was extended. And isn't that why the this is the purview of courts instead of the legislature? I mean, the legislature doesn't have all the facts in every case, and every case is different. And whereas the courts actually hear the evidence and see the facts in the case, I mean, that really is why we set up a court system in this country, I would think. So let me ask uh, for, for everyone here, uh, why why would you interpret that this law came about? Obviously, it is to set up some protections. Um, what do you think the the motivation would be to get the ball rolling on something like this? I think it's probably consistent with the tort reform measures we saw um, in Mississippi in 2002 and 2004 um, that are pushed by special interests and really don't benefit the average consumer in Mississippi. And Ferris, you, you wrote and talked about uh, tort reform when it came out and were uh, against it for lots of reasons. What has been the impact of tort reform? Um, fewer cases, <laughs> uh, but it has not uh, significantly – well, let's take medical malpractice reform, for example um, – the, the backers of that legislation said it would increase the number of doctors who were willing to live and practice medicine in Mississippi. Um, it hasn't. The, the number of doctors has risen on pace with the population in Mississippi. Um, you know, if you look at medical malpractice, um, medical malpractice insurers in Mississippi are making a killing. Um, you know, I just looked at it the other day. For every dollar they earn in premiums, they might only spend 30 cents uh, settling or defending cases. So they're earning a handsome profit. Yeah, they haven't lowered their rates, have they, uh, as far as I can tell? I, I don't. I studied that uh, in the past. I haven't looked at it recently, but it, I, it did not lead to greatly reduced rates. All right, the number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Again, that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Up next on the phones, uh, we have Ruben with us. Ruben, uh, with an interesting story, I believe. Ruben, uh, good morning, and go right ahead. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for calling. Hi, I had an incident at a Walmart, and I was assaulted by the employee. Okay, number one, he was never arrested. Uh, two, uh, my lawyer hasn't contacted me in over since January, and since the last time I talked to him. And every time I call, they give me the runaround, saying that uh, he'll get back to me or he's out. Or and uh, I sent a letter with a return receipt, certified letter, asking him to contact me, and still nothing. I don't know what to do. <sighs> All right, so guys, uh, sounds like maybe first thing is to shop or shop around for uh, new representation, huh? Okay, I thought about that. Well, I'm I, I'm not the legal guy giving advice here. I'm, I'm right. <laughs> you know, one of the ethical rules says that a, an attorney must withdraw when they're fired, and so you do have a right to fire the attorney if they don't get in touch with you. The probably the most one of the most complained areas against lawyers is just failure to communicate with the client. So. I mean, I think you have a right to, to look for someone else. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. All right, Ruben. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. I feel like I have an associate legal degree now. I answered that guy's question for him. 
At least I'll tell myself that for the next few days. One eight seven seven MPB ring is the number. One eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four is the number. At the end this morning, uh, we are talking about the new Landowners Protection Act. Uh, that went into effect July 1st of 2019. Again, you can call us 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. Go ahead there, Professor Gershon. Well, I wanted to uh, get back to some of the uh, the questions of, um, of premises liability. And, and I mean, where, does it, where do we go from here with this? I mean, it, it seems like uh, it's going to be frustrating for lawyers like, like Jesse who practice in this area to really uh, give them kind of protection to, to injured people, uh, is there any recourse for them? Well, I would say the act really limits liability when the injury is caused by a third party and the injury is caused by intentional conduct. It doesn't affect the property owner's obligation to use reasonable care to safely maintain the premises. So Kroger has to mop the floor when it's wet they have to if there are large holes in the parking lot they have a duty to repair that the act doesn't affect that it merely limits well not merely it limits the property owner's liability when a third party commits an intentional act like in jesse's case the apartment complex owner is not going to be liable for the rapist unless the plaintiff can prove that the apartment complex owner impelled the rapist to assault the tenant. So it is going to be a rare case where you can prove a property owner impelled a third party to assault an invitee. Yeah, it seems to me you know, the, the all politics thing referred to some statistics. So we, have, we haven't verified, but that 86% of the companies, the rental companies' settlements are in Jackson. It seems to me that the better business thing to do for that, that business is to say, we need to have more security here because clearly there's a problem. And that really is what the law would have been before this. Now it almost seems like they can ignore that and say, well, we're not going to be responsible. Somebody commits a crime, we're not going to be responsible anyway. And Professor Gershon, you're absolutely right. Um, what we've seen here since the act was passed on July 1st is that there are some apartment complexes who were defendants in cases uh other rape cases that we've had where tenants were raped in a parking lot and attacked in a parking lot. Um, and they were aware of the, these sorts of incidents going on in the parking lot, but wasn't telling tenants. We've seen where those apartment complexes who got security after, uh, after suits and being held accountable have now released their security and don't have security anymore. Interesting. All right, let's uh, take another phone call here. Uh, up next, we have Lauren, who is on the phone in Jackson. Lauren, good morning. Good morning. I uh, was in a multiple car accident uh, almost two years ago in October, and have not consulted an attorney, but do have some some things I think that should be paid for. And so the, um, the company, the other insurance company, sent me a letter saying, "Hey, um, you know, we accept the responsibility for the accident." Do you have a claim? And I, it, do you have something that you want to uh, claim like us? And so I um, guess my question is, like, should I just write them a letter and say, hey, um, yeah, I want you to pay me for my last days of work and also for physical therapy, or should I maybe let professionals do it? Um, that's my question. 
Ooh, I can take another one here. Uh, I was in a 10-car wreck on Interstate 10 in New Orleans about a year and a half ago. Uh, get representation, please. Now, I know Louisiana has a whole different zoo when it comes to insurance and how that works legally, but uh, yes, please get you some representation. It will make that situation, even in spite of, you know, if you're worried about the cost of it or whatever, it will make it a a thousand times easier because I, I know in my personal experience, um, uh, I was in a situation where I was uh, uh, in standstill traffic, uh, but hit by a car from behind that didn't evidently did not see the quarter mile of standstill traffic in front of her and uh, got shot into the car in front of me and flipped over twice into lanes with moving traffic and was hit again. And um, <laughs> I had representation uh, from uh, or representatives, I should say, from. Uh, two or three other insurance companies among the 10 uh, cars that were in the accident that, that were trying to coerce me into saying uh, in, in one-on-one phone calls, trying to coerce me into making statements that relieved their clients of responsibility. And uh, I mean, it was, it was totally Bush league and it was, it was totally completely visible from 10 miles away and i don't mean to rabbit trail on this thing this is not what the topic of the show is about but let, let me just tell you from very personal experience get representation and it will save you a bunch of headaches all right i agree with you jay i appreciate that uh, I think, you know, we have, you know, ferris was a, a great lawyer when she was practicing and, and also clerk for the fifth circuit court of appeals and we got jesse who is a practicing attorney who does a lot of this kind of work and, and they are there to advocate for you and they understand the law in a way that uh, that uh, a lot of people just by themselves could not. Plus, these things are time sensitive too. So the other thing is you got to worry about statutes, limitations, and things like that. So the sooner you talk to a lawyer in this situation, the better. All right, we will take our last time out of the hour here. Thanks for the call, Lauren uh, Hernandez from uh, Faraday, Louisiana. We're going to take your call when we come back from this time out. You can give us a call, 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jay White here with Professor Richard Gershon. And uh, we're going to go right back to the phones here. And we have Hernandez, who's on the phone in Natchez. I got the town wrong earlier. It changed. Something happened during that break. Uh, so he's on the move, Hernandez. Uh, we appreciate the call. Good morning. Good morning, sir. And good morning, everybody. Thank you for uh, taking my call and your time. God bless. I need to know... Uh, in private land, the the hunting in private land. What is it that I need to have for that uh, occasion or permanent? 
That's a great question because that's something that can be very prevalent in Mississippi. Private hunting land. Does the does the the liability in this law does that uh, apply to uh, you know a situation like that? I'll leave it to one of the torch professors or the torch lawyers. <laughs> I mean, the owner of the property would owe a duty to hunters who the owner gave permission, but that would be only the duty owed to a licensee, which is just to refrain from wanton or willful injury or to warn of hidden dangers. Um, if somebody trespassed on the private hunting land, the property owner wouldn't owe, would only owe the duty to refrain from wanton and willful injury. Does that answer that for you? Oh, too short, and it's a lot of explanation. <laughs> but it's okay. So what you're saying is if I give permit, written permit, to a hunter friend or family to enter my land and a hunt um, liable or not well like professor percy just mentioned it depends on the factual situation and circumstances if you gave them permission then they will be considered um, an invitee in that sense and y your duty is to keep the property the property reasonably safe and to warn them of any hidden dangers so, and I'm not sure what sort of injury or what act or what, what are the facts that occurred that you uh, relating to your question. Hernandez, we appreciate appreciate the call from Natchez this morning. And uh, again, it goes back to it's not necessarily you're not you're not liable for every single thing that happens to every person that you give permission to. It goes back to if something happens to that person and then if it's if a case is brought forth, then it's that establishing um the i guess the 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 danger or the lack of protection or the lack of awareness or the lack of uh, notification of of potential danger those types of things right that, that's absolutely correct uh jay and, and again going back to the landowner protection act and, and what the law previously was it's not an absolute it's not that if somebody gets injured or if there's a criminal attack on your property then the landowner is liable no it's far from that there were many steps that you had to prove and show in order to ever bring the claim. And then for the claim to be successful, a jury would have to hear the facts as it applied to the law. And did you meet each element of the claim? And was security reasonable? If security was reasonable but didn't stop the crime for whatever reason, then the defendant is not liable. So it's not an absolute that, oh, you had security and this happened, therefore you're liable. Absolutely not. It is based on the situation and circumstances as the atmosphere of violence on that property. Was security reasonable? If it was, then you're then the defendant uh, is not liable at all. All right. So we got about 90 seconds left here. Uh, professors uh, Gershon and Percy, any final thoughts on the subject this morning? Well, I. I just think this is such an important topic, and we really appreciate them be, being here today. I mean, we talked about new laws, and in the past we talked about things like bed bugs and things like that, premises liability, <laughs> but never gotten into really the more violent issue. And, and this is so important, and I uh, really appreciate uh, Professor Percy and, and Jesse being here today. 
All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us this morning. Uh, uh, you can go to our website, mpbonline.org. You'll be able to find uh, this episode of the program uh, there, uh, available for download. Also, if you subscribe to the In Legal Terms podcast, wherever you download your podcast, whether it be uh, Google Podcast, uh, the Apple Podcast app, uh, Google Play, iTunes, anywhere that you can get your podcast, you can find the In Legal Terms program as well as any of the MPB local programs there. Our thanks to Professor Farish Percy and Attorney Jesse Mitchell for partnering with us for this morning's show. That'll wrap us up today for In Legal Terms. Uh, our board engineer here in Jackson has been Michelle McAdoo, and I believe our call screener was Kevin Farrell. All right, excellent for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I am Jay White, in for producer Liz Gill. Coming up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. And join us again next Tuesday at 10 for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.